Welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection between race, democracy, public policy, social justice, and citizenship. All right, we are pleased to welcome Dr. Maurice J. Hobson, who's Associate Professor of African American Studies and a historian at Georgia State University, and who has just written a wonderful new book, The Legend of the Black Mecca, Politics and Class in the Making of Modern Atlanta. Maurice Hobson, welcome to Race and Democracy. Hey, brother. The pleasure is all mine to be here. And congratulations on all of your new accolades with your new book, Sword and Shield, man. No, thank you. Maurice, I really loved reading this book. I've read so much on Atlanta, just as, as a historian of the civil rights movement. I think what's so unique about your voice is how you're able to braid these different Atlantas together in this argument, really in a way I've never seen done, you know? So I think it's quite an accomplishment for all the great books by Tamiko Brown-Nagin and Winston Grady Willis and, you know, books by political scientists over the years that look at Black mayors. You put it all in here together. You have everything from Maynard Jackson and the Atlanta child murders to, you know, the Summerhill uprising of 68, Stokely Carmichael, then into Andrew Young and sort of these neoliberal policies of making what you call the Olympification of Atlanta, which I thought was really, really great. And then I love, you know, I'm I'm a generation Xer. I love Outcast and Goody Mob. <laughs> I mean, you talk about a sweet spot. By the end of the book, I just wanted more. So I want us to, you know, we could start from the beginning, but I think it's so cool that you politics and class and the making of modern Atlanta, you're not a scholar who's afraid to shy away about uh, these contradictions about, you know, Maynard Jackson and the 1977 strike. And at the same time, he helps the black elite and others with the airport and the contracts going from 1% to 30%, basically overnight. So let's dig into this legend of Black Mecca. And, and one of the great things you do very early on, too, is talk about how Atlanta has all these HBCUs, Morehouse, Spelman. And Atlanta was such played such a critical role during the Civil War and after. So you really look at Atlanta. I think the only two places I could think of that have the kind of cachet is Harlem and Atlanta in terms of Black folks and Black history. Yeah. Well, first and foremost, thank you for taking the time to read the book. You know, you know, sometimes we write these books to get tenure and you just hope that it's received well. And uh, it, it, it's been very well received. I mean, I, I did create some enemies, but I, w- I will say this. First and foremost, I mean, I have the absolute utmost admiration for Maynard Jackson personal and, and Andrew Young. And Ambassador Andrew Young and I are actually very close friends. And uh, I interview him and we talk. And so when people read the book, they're like, they can't be friends. But the thing about it is uh, I am blessed to be a historian that is trained in political science, sociology and economics. And it's part of the reason why I am not in a traditional or conventional history program is because uh, you have to marry different kind of methodologies to be able to tell a story, particularly when you're telling the story of marginalized people. Truth of the matter is that much of the Black experience is not in an archive. And so we have to recreate and reframe and rethink what we believe archives to be. And um, I was able to kind of marry a, a lot of that. Uh, th- there's some really cool personal stories as to how I ended up you know, doing this work. The cool thing about it is the book can go from the ebb and flow of, I mean, Atlanta is a special place for Black folk. Mm-hmm. But then on the flip side, I mean, 
we put so much pressure on Atlanta to be something for black folk when it's it's not that for everyone. And so it doesn't allow for Atlanta, the embodiment of Atlanta to be humane. I mean, there are winners and losers in everything that we do in life. I named this book, The Legend of the Black Mecca, because for every legend, there is truth. The trick is, is we must understand what is real or what is true and what is embellished. And that's the line that I really wanted to walk. And so, and speaking on that line, I want you to situate Maynard Jackson for us, because I think with the new documentary in the last couple of years, Maynard, which is on Netflix, which I've seen really nice, he's he's gotten a second look. And you argue here, you know, he's the first Black big city mayor of a of a major urban metropolis in the South. And I think that's exactly right. Yeah. Uh, so he, it's not Detroit. It's not Los Angeles with Tom Bradley. It's not Gary, Indiana with Richard Hatcher. It's not Coleman Young in Indiana, in, in Cleveland. It's Atlanta, the really the Black Mecca. So tell us about Maynard Jackson. And really, you, you give a nice holistic perspective here on Maynard Jackson. There's some great pictures, too. I recommend everybody to get this book. And um, tell us about Maynard Jackson. So uh, I tell you what, you know, that documentary on Netflix, uh, I was blessed to serve as the chief historian for that. And uh, I'm in the document. The joke is, is I'm in the documentary as much as Maynard Jackson is. But I'm also (laughs) the only person in the documentary who doesn't have a personal affiliation with Maynard Jackson in the sense of being a mentor or benefiting from business or being a political person. I met Maynard Jackson once when I was five years old uh, with my parents. And, uh, and I still remember that day. But and, and the story on how I got into that documentary is an even better story than what I'm about to say about Maynard Jackson. Maynard Holbrook Jackson Jr. was a fifth generation Georgian. He was born in Dallas, Texas, but on both sides of his, of his family, his maternal family and his paternal family, they were Georgians. Um, and the tradition of, of the American South, and you know, I'm not here promoting paternalism in any kind of way. His uh, paternal grandfather was Alexander Jackson, who was the founder of Wheat Street Baptist Church, which is in the Sweet Auburn District, which was considered to be one of the more radical churches. Uh, Wheat Street just celebrated 151 years um, this past summer. So it's been around, you know, just after the Civil War. And then his maternal grandfather, uh, his, his mother's father was John Wesley Dobbs. Uh, who was deemed as the unofficial mayor of the Sweet Auburn District. The Sweet Auburn District is the business thoroughfare for for the Black community in Atlanta. And it boasts, as many other communities, that it was the richest Negro street in the world. Mm. His grandfather, John Wesley Dobbs, was also the highest ranking Mason in all of Georgia. And so he had real influence. John Wesley Dobbs had six daughters. And his oldest daughter, Irene Dobbs Jackson, was Maynard's mother. She received, she had gone to Spelman College, did a PhD at the University of Toulouse. His father, Maynard uh, Jackson Sr., was born in New Orleans, but again was Georgia blooded and had mo- moved to Dallas where he pastored a church. And then he moves to Atlanta uh, where he works at Morehouse College and serves as dean of the chapel. At the age of 15, Maynard goes to Morehouse College. He goes to public schools in Atlanta. He goes to Morehouse College. Uh, his father dies in his teenage years, his grandfather raises him. And when he goes to Morehouse College, uh, he does very well, majors in history and, and political science, so go figure. He's able to go off to, to law school. He first goes to Boston, and then he goes to North Carolina Central. 
uh, University, North Carolina College, which later becomes North Carolina Central. And he uh, is a feisty mayor. I mean, he, he's a he, he's a very charismatic kind of person. I mean, you know, particularly in the black community, American South. I mean, he's, you know, wavy hair, he's green eyes, he's light skin, has this booming voice. And that's often depicted when people talk about him. But he also was, you know, severely serious about politics. And he moves back to Atlanta from North Carolina uh, with his family in 1966. And in 1968, Basically, what happens is after the assassination of Dr. King and Atlanta doesn't erupt, and then the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy, Maynard Jackson has to do something. He and his wife had just had a baby, and he decides that he is going to run for the U.S. Senate against Herman Talmadge, which is one of the old Southern oligarchical families here in Georgia. I mean, they're staunch white supremacists. He does this, and he doesn't ask for the hand of the uh, – he, he doesn't ask for the permission from the Atlanta Negro Voters League which Tamiko Brown-Nagin really discusses in her book with the Atlanta style of biracial negotiation, which his grandfather, John Wesley Dobbs, was one of the co-founders of. And so mm-hmm. that's a story in that. I mean, I don't want to get too deep into it. What happens, though, Maynard Jackson loses handily uh, in, this, in this Senate race, but he's able to carry Atlanta, and he's able to make a name for himself around the state. And so in 1969, he runs for vice mayor. Uh, whereas Sam Massell would become the first Jewish mayor of Atlanta. And of course, Sam Massell had suffered from the same discrimination that black folk had suffered against because he was Jewish. I mean, you know, white America is just as much anti-Semitic as it is racist, anti-black, you know. And so uh, so what happens with this, though, is Jackson is elected as vice mayor. He changed, He helps to change the Constitution. And then he decides he's going to run for mayor and... He does all of this without necessarily consulting the kingmakers, the black kingmakers. But what Maynard is able to understand when he runs for mayor is that there was a changing demographic. And also with the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 coming out of Birmingham, which buttresses the 14th Amendment, and the passage of the Voting Rights Act uh, in 1965 that comes out of my hometown of Selma, Alabama, with, uh, that promotes uh, voting. You have citizenship and voting, and it becomes Atlanta that is seen as a new city, particularly with the uh, Sunbelt boom and the uh, return migration or reverse migration. And so Atlanta becomes prosperous. Those historically black colleges are attracting a particular group of uh, young, smart black folk. But what also is happening is that black Americans who had left the American South due to you know several episodes of the great migrations we're now saying that the North was not all it was cracked up to be. And now that de jure and de facto segregation had been broken down through civil rights legislation, that the American South was the new frontier. And as a result of that, you saw a changing demographic. Maynard I was, want, yeah, I go want ahead. to talk to you about the new, the new South and that new frontier, because I think one of the things that you do uh, very well is to talk about the, even if we don't call them the contradictions, but I think with this, you really look at, Maynard Jackson, uh, you know, election night, Jesse Jackson, mm-hmm. there's all these people there. And really, he's going to serve from 74 to 82, and there's going to be really major accomplishments. But he really serves within the paradigm of neoliberalism. You it, know? It, yes. He yeah. really serves within a paradigm of, of sort of this privatization and commodification, um, this exploitation that really doesn't serve the Black poor very well. But as you show, both with Maynard and then Andrew um, Young, in an even bigger way you show, the poor are discounted and the Black elites 
don't want you to say anything on behalf of the poor. Certainly the starkest example is going to be the Atlanta child murders. The folks who get killed by and large are are poor children, the 30 children who are killed. And so I, I want you to talk about Maynard Jackson and really the class issues. And despite this, and despite what happens with the garbage workers, he's going to be reelected handily. So this idea of black faces in higher places and the black Mecca becomes so, so important, but black poor people are left behind. And it's a real contradiction because people like Maynard Jackson in the late 60s and as vice mayor, he was constantly talking about po- poverty, right? And so he, he comes in and, and it becomes this sort of neoliberal framework where it's going to be trickled down and things are really built up, but really at the expense or, or not, not with parallel movement and access for poor black Atlantans. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, I think that Maynard's time as mayor, I think that Maynard Jackson did the best he could with what he had because it was uncharted waters, particularly in the American South. And what's, what's unique about the American South is that I, I used to make this argument in graduate school when there was there would be some hardcore leftists who would say things like, well, you know, the black upper class and middle class have thrown the black working class support under the bus. And I was like, I, I think it's way more complicated than that. I was like, I mean, the truth of the matter is because of segregation, the visual marking, uh, markings of segregation. And what I mean by that is, I mean, where I grew up in Selma, Alabama, if you go to the football field where I played high school football, there are monuments that say colored and white for, for World War II veterans. I mean, so so you you, you got to understand, like, it's, there are very clear differences. What I think really, it, this really is, is that the greatest um, gladiator pit in the world is American capitalism. And here it is, uh, a black mayor, a radical, a radical thinking black mayor at that time, is working within a claret red conservative state. And though he's he's mayor, you know, cities at that time are dependent heavily heavily on um, federal funds and investments and whatever whatnot. And they begin to hold that from Atlanta. And so here, Maynard Jackson is is he's navigating these waters. And so the thing ab- about this though is that. One of the things, I mean, Maynard Jackson is one of the most notable statesmen in terms of black politics. I mean, he was a race man. He would he could negotiate. But then on the flip side is he was really trying to give some things to black folk. But the truth of the matter is that the folks in Atlanta, particularly the power brokers, the white business elite, they only wanted a select few of people to get some things. And so the 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 thing about it is the Atlanta child murders does become this episode where we can really see those class divisions. But truthfully, black folk in the American South all live amongst each other. Where you, whether you're black elite or you, or, or you can be the lumpen proletariat, everyone knows each other. All of the community, you go to the same churches, the barbecue spots, the barbershops, all kinds of different things. And so it's not as starkly different as it would be in a place uh, like Detroit per se. Um, and, and I'm you know not singling out Detroit. But with the Atlanta child murders, I mean, the problem was, is that Maynard, it took him a year to admit that there was a serial killer. Now, one of the things I push in my research is that the murders start as early as 1975 and end as late as 1985. So it's, and it's way more than the 30 that we, we all know of, um, which is part of the reason why the legend of the Black Mecca becomes the basis for the Atlanta uh, child murder, missing and murdered on HBO. So I served as a producer for that, uh, a consultant and producer for that. But the the thing about it is that 
Maynard Jackson, it takes him a year to admit that there are black children being murdered. These are by and large poor black male children, the best, you know, the most vibrant, but vulnerable population in Atlanta. And nothing was being done. I mean, even to this day, 2020, on uh, November 13th, 2020, Wayne Williams, who sits in jail, was convicted of killing two adults. So all of the murders of the children that we know of, no one has been brought to justice on that. And so that's the, and that's the reason, um, speaking of that, that's the reason I met Maynard Jackson when I was five years old. My father was offered a job to work at Morehouse School of Medicine, and he didn't take the job because they were killing black children in Atlanta and nothing was being done. And at the time, it was three boys and a girl in my family. And so with that being said, an interesting thing that I don't put in the book, because I know it's true, but I can't prove it empirically, is that every Tuesday, Maynard Jackson would fly to Washington, D.C., meet with President Jimmy Carter, who was from Georgia, and beg him to open uh, a federal case on the Atlanta child murders, and it and and Jimmy Carter would not do it. And so what happened is it's when Ronald Reagan comes in office that that actually takes place. Now, I know that that's true uh, because of some notes that I've been able to witness, but the notes are kind of handwritten, and so I can't just kind of cite it in terms of a bibliography. Um, but with that being said, I mean, at that time also, Maynard Jackson's son, uh, Maynard Jackson III, who we call affectionately Buzzy, fit the profile of what it meant to be a missing and murdered child. I mean, he was a particular frame. He had an Afro hairstyle. He was a black boy. And so um, there's a lot more to this than that. But you're right. It does lean into the neoliberal politics that will emerge in the 1980s, 1970s and 80s. And so let's move on to um, the Olympification. And you're really very critical of of Andrew Young's mayorality, and I, as you, I think as you should, and I know you're friends with him. Why is Andrew Young this kind of mayor between uh, 1983 and 1991 in the sense of this idea of international investment? I know some of it has to do with globalization and deindustrialization, and you get the Democratic National Convention there in 1988, and and uh, we think about Jesse Jackson's second run and Ron Brown becomes head of the DNC. There's so much stuff happening where there are elites gaining access. And uh, Andy Young has been a congressman at this point. He's been mayor. He's been UN ambassador. So on some levels, it's racial progress. But I think as you show, uh, crack cocaine is tremendous. There's crime, uh, you know, urban renewal, gentrification. At the lower frequencies, Black Atlanta is really producing the kind of misery that then Outcast and Goody Mob are going to be reflecting upon and critiquing. You know, the whole AT aliens and you know Marta moving Africans rapidly through Atlanta. So I want us to um, talk about talk about that. So, 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 yeah. I mean, hey, that's a great question. Um, the interesting thing about Andrew Young. And, and I'll say this, uh, when I wrote my dissertation uh, while finishing at the University of Illinois, uh, I was way more critical of Andrew Young because I could only go with the record that I had. Now, once I was able to move to Atlanta and sit down and do interviews, um, I'm, 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 I'm not letting him off the hook, but he, he gave me a lot more context to what, what, what was going on. And these, this is context that, that he could prove. And so- What's going on during this time is that, of course, when Ronald Reagan comes into office, 
uh, is, is elected as president in 1980 and, and is inaugurated in 1981, we see an onslaught of different things. I mean, Reaganomics and the and trickle down, which never worked. Uh, we see the shift in the, the economy moving from the industrial age to the information age. And of course, you know, the Sunbelt boom has taken advantage of that. But what that does in terms of education is the education that was, that was given in public schools, particularly in the 1940s, 50s, well, post-1945 until about 1980 or 1985, was one for industry. I mean, many of us, and I'm, I'm and Brother Peniel, I'm sure that, you know, even in your family, uh, even during your time, um, I mean, we knew people that graduated from high school, they may have been older than us, and they could go get a good job and make the proverbial good money that we talk about in the Black community. Um, but what happens is with that information age and technology and, and that boom, the curriculum that was being taught in public schools um, was not adequate for this new shift in information age due to the Cold War. And what happens with that is black and brown people are overwhelmingly left out of, you know, left, left out without the proper education. What also is taking place here is the rise of the AIDS epidemic, um, which is, you know, heavily uh, impacting black communities. Uh, for several different reasons. Another thing is the rise of crack cocaine. And the interesting thing about crack cocaine and the AIDS epidemic is that there's money that is, particularly with the, the war on drugs, there's about a trillion dollars that's taken from public education to create the school to prison nexus. We see the militarization of the police. And so we begin to understand that prison is big business. And with crack cocaine, we see legislation that is passed that overwhelmingly targets black and brown, black and brown folk. Now, we also have some things going on internationally in terms of the, uh, the Iran-Contra scandal. So you can see how all these things are working. But with Andrew Young, when he comes into office, we see a real divestment in terms of federal funds to cities. And so, as you stated, you know, Andrew Young was a lieutenant for Dr. King. Uh, he served in, in Congress uh, for several years, I mean, he was the first congressman to be elected since Reconstruction. He then is tapped to be UN ambassador. He he serves for a couple of years with that uh, under President Jimmy Carter, uh, but then he's dismissed because he has a meeting with the Palestinian Liberation Organization. Now, the interesting thing about Ambassador Young is his job was to promote American capitalism, disguised as Dr. King's dream, to the Black world, so to Africa, the Caribbean, South America. Uh, to stave off the Soviets and the, the communist and communist China. Young was able to make friends around the world because he was there to show respect. I mean, at that time, but before President Jimmy Carter, the U.S.'s uh, image around the world had been tattered because of the Vietnam conflict. And so as a result of this, um, Young went to African nations and said, hey, let's see how we can work together. We want to respect you all. And, and Young is able to make friends. As a result of this. And so when he becomes mayor and Ronald Reagan is taking the money out of the city, Andrew Young is able to call on his friends on the continent and in the Caribbean who invest in the city. But that, what that also means is that Europe is now coming to invest in the city. And so we see a privatization, a, a real aspect of international neoliberalism that builds up Atlanta. But we also begin to understand that the citizens of Atlanta, particularly the black and poor citizens of Atlanta, um, see Andrew Young as kind of this globetrotting mayor, an, a mayor that's not here and doing nothing for them. And um, again, it's a byproduct of American capitalism. I mean, Ronald Reagan was punitive 
towards black communities in the 1980s. Um, so it doesn't give uh, Ambassador Young a pass, um, but it complicates the situation. And so when we begin to talk about the Atlanta hosting the Democratic National Convention or Atlanta creating the Red Dog Police, the militarized police in the 1980s for crack cocaine, and we begin to kind of know and understand that Atlanta is pushing to be this Olympic city and what it would take to kind of sell the city for that. And how, I mean, even Dr. King's dream, his image, his legacy was exploited on the world stage to kind of show Atlanta as being the home of the, you know, land of the free and home of the brave and, you know, all of that with, with Dr. King. What happens is once Atlanta wins the Olympic Games, it's basically Dr. King's exploited legacy, whitewashed legacy that disfranchised, criminalizes, demonizes, and displaces the people that King would fight hardest for, the black poor. And that's why you see Outkast and Goody Mob emerge when I talk about the Olympification of Atlanta. And so that's the substance for them. And when, let me let me seg in here because I want to talk about Outkast and Goody Mob. Um, and then I, I want to have that as a, a final departure from the book and then get to the contemporary. Um, when you think about Outkast and Goody Mob, you, you talk about the Dirty South. Yes. And Dirty South hip hop. And this is even before Bun B, before Trill, before, mm-hmm. um, you know, a, a lot of what we're going to see Jay-Z get into Dirty South and other folks. What's so, you talk about the SWAT, Southwest Atlanta. You you, you talk about, um, you know, in certain ways, uh, they're from areas like, you know, Vine City in the 1960s. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and these are areas I've been to. I've done a lot of research in Atlanta. And so- What's the different perspective that Goody Mob and Outkast are able to do both for Atlanta, but also nationally, because they become such national stars, especially, obviously, Outkast. But I, I definitely love Soul Food, Goody Mob's uh, first album. And that stands for the good die mostly over bullshit. And they've, they, they're really, really great. you know. And they talk about, I've been to the beautiful. They talk about, you know, I've been to Pascal's. I've, I've I've done the tour of Black Atlanta, but also the tour of the SWATs and the whole AT aliens. And, you know, in that, Outcast is talking about mass incarceration. They talk about uh, the drug war and the new Jim Crow. They're really breaking it down. Um, um, what What is so important about them? Because you really add something by talking about them. So so what becomes so important about Outcast and Goody Mob, and, 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 and I'll say this. I mean, Outkast and Goody Mob in Atlanta, they were not the first on the scene in the American South. They're the first to kind of market it in a particular way. But one of the things I lay out is the political theory of the Black New South, which allows for Atlanta to emerge as this kind of Black Mecca as a result of the civil rights legislation that comes out of Alabama. So if the Black New South is the political movement, much like Black Power, the Dirty South is the expressive movement, much like the Black Arts movement. So that's how I'm I'm situating it. But this is the thing about it. Um, this Atlanta is uh the one of the issues that we see in Atlanta today is you got Atlanta and you have ATL. Now, Outcast and Goody Mob, they don't say that they're from ATL, they are from Atlanta. And it gives you this kind of feel of like Atlanta is a big country town. It's a it's a southern town. Like, I mean, we make no ifs, ands or buts about it. We are who we are. A large influx from Alabama, from Tennessee, from the Carolinas and from Florida. But and, and that's the thing about being here is for someone like me who grew up, you know, 190 miles away from Atlanta, 
Um, I mean, I can see my high school classmates every day if I want to, because there's so many of us here. But but the thing, what's real about this is that they come from these particular neighborhoods that is that's not seen in terms of the Black Mecca. So the Black Mecca piece is oftentimes this the black Mecca has this relationship with the white business elite. Well, what, what outcast and goody mob do initially is that they bring about this kind of understanding of the blackest parts of Atlanta that that's not seen by everyone. Um, several years ago, I wrote this piece about the TV show Atlanta, um, on, on Fox. And I called it all black, everything with an A with that Southern twang, all black, everything. And I talk about how, like there are these parts of Atlanta that's not a part of that glitz and glamour of ATL and the Black Mecca. It's like real Black Atlanta. The, also with this is UGK, 8-Ball and MJG. Uh, UGK from Port Arthur, Texas, 8-Ball and MJG from Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, Ghetto Boys from Houston, Texas. Uh, Criss Cross, Jermaine Dupree, they all, they all precede um, Outkast and they're Southern artists. They may not always look and sound that way, but I, I mean, I think UGK and Memphis do. But when Outkast and Goody Mob set the scene and they coined that term, the Dirty South, which becomes a rallying cry, and their first music is really critiquing the Olymp the franchising of Atlanta for world consumption and the criminalization, demonization, displacement, and disenfranchisement of Atlanta's Black Indigenous community with soul and funk, and that has a lot to do with Maynard Jackson, who puts money into the arts industry, you get a very different black Southern sound. And 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 the thing about Outkast and Goody Mob, which is why I created the Black New South, is, listen, we're not missing anything being Southern. As a matter of fact, we are the heart and soul of Black America. That's what that's what you, you get with this. And I think that that is what they're able to do. And Atlanta becomes the venue. It becomes the hub. And the experiences of Black Atlantans, I mean, whether they are Black elite or the Black poor and working class, I think that it resonates with the rest of Black America and it can even extend over into, you know, the Black world, particularly in terms of the influx of Nigerian, Ghanaian, um, Caribbean folk who live in this area. Yeah, I'm part of the Caribbean folk. I'm, I'm, I'm proudly Haitian and Black American. So I'm part of, say, I'm I want to talk about the contemporary, Maurice, um, especially... Uh, Stacey Abrams, and I know you've 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 advised folks who are running for office in in um, both Atlanta, Georgia, at the national level too. I want to talk about uh, Georgia turning blue from red. Uh, Stacey Abrams really being um, defeated in a closely contested gubernatorial race, but but really instead of uh, uh, somehow losing hope. Uh, organizing the largest voter turnout in, in Black Georgia history, over 600,000 new voters in the 2020 election for Biden-Harris, the first uh, Black woman elected vice president. Let's talk about Georgia. There's going to be a runoff on January 5th uh, for two, two Senate seats. And if Democrats win those Senate seats, the Senate is going to be a 50-50 tie with uh, the vice president holding the tiebreaker. It's not all gravy, even if they win, because of Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema and these blue dog Democrats, yeah. uh, yellow dog Democrats, they used to call them. Mm -hmm. And so I, I want to talk about Georgia in 2020, you know, which really is about a couple of decades after you leave off, uh, you know, the legend of the Black Mecca and Atlanta in 2020 with Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms and, and how 
How similar and dissimilar is the Atlanta under Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms, who extraordinary Black woman, uh, 2020 is the year of Black women who, who saved democracy. Um, how different is the Atlanta of Keisha Lance Bottoms from the neoliberalism of, of um, the Maynard Jackson and Andrew Young uh, administrations? And, and, how, and how similar is it um, to, to that in terms, of, in terms of 2020? And it, can somebody like Stacey Abrams, when we think about Georgia, could she transform if she becomes the first Black woman ever in American history? We've been around for 200 and 44 years, 2026, we're going to be 250 years old. We've never had a Black woman governor of any state in American history. And Stacey Abrams might make that history in 2022. She was considered as vice president. And certainly many of us think Stacey might be uh, maybe the second Black woman to be president, <laughs> maybe after Kamala Harris. So um, I want to talk about Georgia and Atlanta in the contemporary context. Well, I, I'm here to tell you, you know, uh, last week um, during the election season and, you know, we, we've, we've seen that Georgia has been trending blue for the last few years. And, uh, of course, uh, Stacey Abrams, we would call her Leader Abrams. Uh, of course, Miss um, Stacey Abrams in Fair Fight has done due diligence. Uh, and there have been some other organizations and Leader Abrams has always been very gregarious in telling who those are. Um, my sister, uh, Latasha Brown, uh, with Black Voters Matter, uh, is also a formidable force who got on a bus and was riding everywhere, went to 15 states um, to, to really get Black folks registered. Uh, so it's Latasha Brown and Cliff Albright who did that. And then my sister here, young sister, uh, Nse Ufat uh, of the New Georgia Project. So there's a whole slew of Black women here who are working together. Um but the thing about it is that Georgia is 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 changing in so many ways. I mean, you, Atlanta is roughly about six million people, and I think the population of Georgia is roughly eleven million people. So, of course, Atlanta is the city state. It's I mean, like so as Atlanta go well, how Atlanta goes, so does Georgia. You know, um, but the thing about it, and and you mentioned um, the honorable uh, mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms. Um, the, what what is different about Mayor Bottoms' tenure as mayor versus Maynard Jackson and Andrew Young is that when Maynard Jackson and Andrew Young were mayors, the city was roughly 67% Black. The city of Atlanta. Now, we're not talking about the suburbs. The city of Atlanta was 67% Black. And, the, and during the 1970s and 80s, the majority of Black people who lived in the area lived in the city of Atlanta. Uh, un, now that uh, Mayor Lance Bottoms uh, is at the helm, the city is 51% Black. So what has happened here is due to, you know, cost inflation, urban renewal, gentrification, neoliberalism, urban regime theory, we've, we've seen where many Black folk who grew up in Atlanta cannot afford to necessarily live in the city. I mean, it's extremely expensive to live in the city. And so you see um, black folk who primarily live out in the suburbs. So we're seeing a reverse of white flight. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so the thing about it is Maynard Jackson and Andrew Young knew that, you know, Atlanta was this diamond in the rough, uh, but it was kind of their well-kept secret and they were able to cultivate it. Whereas Keisha Lance Bottoms 
is at the helm of an international and world-class city. And so it's, it's no longer a secret. And so um, to see Mayor Lance Bottoms and how uh, she has to navigate with a governor who is uh, a lieutenant of 45 and how that has played out. I mean, you know, the whole thing with the coronavirus um, was a serious issue, whereas the governor was, you know, banning masks and Mayor Lance Bottoms was using her power as mayor to implement policies to where it is uh, you it's law to wear masks in, in terms of COVID-19. Uh, when the eruption took place uh, over the summer as a result of the murders of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and Rayshard Brooks, again, you know, Mary Lance Bottoms um, really had to kind of pivot and really show uh, who she was. I mean, she's from Atlanta. She is homegrown. She and 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 that's not an act. She is homegrown and she is beloved in the city. And so, and then to see her really work her magic uh, along with other Black women who have been elected, you know whether it be, you know, at the, at the local, state, and national level uh, to really get behind um, President-elect Joe Biden and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris, uh, it makes Atlanta that much more sweeter. Is there, um, is there, you know, Maurice, is there an Atlanta where you can see the eradication of poverty, the eradication of the kind of um, racial economic segregation? And we're talking about the Black poor here, which you center in your book, uh, where they are, they are part of uh, this new South, where they're enjoying the benefits of of that kind of education and access uh, that the city is producing, at least for some people. Is there is there a is there a vision and version of that? And if so, like what what would it what would it take? Well, so yeah, there is a vision and version of it. Uh, there's a vision and version of it for a select few group of people, and and. You know, I am one of those. I mean, I, I I love this city and I am able to do things in this city, even though I'm not from Atlanta. And Atlanta is a town like that. I mean, you know, if you're not from here, they look at your side eye until you can prove why you why they want to claim you. Um, but the 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 truth of it though is, I mean, in two thousand from two thousand eight to two thousand ten, we see the largest cheating scandal of any uh in, in American history that impacted a generation of black and brown children who were educated in the public yeah. schools. And so, they jailed I mean, those teachers too. They jailed it, the black teachers. It, 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 exactly. And we also, you know, we we know and understand that, I mean, you know, the displacement of people and gentrification in so many ways has been, I mean, critical to black communities. Um, you know, policies um, that have diluted black communities in a city like Atlanta. I mean, right now there's this big issue around this area in downtown called the Gulch. Uh, an old abandoned kind of field in the middle of downtown Atlanta that had overgrown and now it's you know selling for five billion. Um, bungalows in the West End and in Vine City English Avenue, which is historically black and um, some would you know say run down. I mean now bungalows are selling for four hundred and fifty thousand dollars for a you know two bed one bath house. In, the, in areas called the bluff. I mean, these are areas that, you know, really struggled in terms of 1980s, 90s, and even presently in terms of drugs and violence and all kinds of different things. And so there, there is a group of black folk who are able to make it, um, but that just doesn't trickle to the masses. And I always find it to be problematic that, that we must, I find it problematic that the pressure is put on Atlanta to be all things to all people 
when the truth of the matter is that there is nothing in this world, there's no entity, no component of this world that is all things to all people. And so I think that Atlanta doesn't allow for itself to be hum human, uh, that they must be everything to everyone. And the truth of the matter is there are probably 14 different black Atlantas. <laughs> Where do we go for he from here? My, my, my last question to you is really about just, you know, do you feel hope and progress, both somebody who's, you know, a historian of Atlanta and now uh, Atlanta just turned blue for the first time since 1992, but really in a two-way presidential race for the first time since 1976 under Carter, because Clinton had Ross Perot. So the, the, the better analogy for Biden is really 1976. So Atlanta just turned blue for the first time uh, in 44 years. Uh, what's happening in terms of Georgia? Georgia turning blue, Atlanta, Stacey Abrams, the power of Black women. Do you feel hopeful in terms of that history that you uh, really so so aptly describe in uh, legend the legend of the Black Mecca and the contradictions within that history that those contradictions can be can be resolved. Well, I believe that the contradictions can be resolved. I, th I think that uh, this current the the current American president, the sitting American president, uh, has been so divisive uh, and has pushed buttons in ways to where. Um, Many of his own supporters have abandoned him because, I mean, he threatens things such as civil civil liberties. He threatens, you know, the right to vote. I mean, it's it's things that like he he was out of line to kind of come out to to come out like that. Um, so I'm not sure if with Biden, I'm not sure if, and, and even with the uh, with President Elect Biden and Kamala Harris. And also uh, senatorial candidates, um, Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff. I'm not sure if that's an anti-Trump vote or what, but to ask me if I feel hopeful, I, I absolutely do. And I say that because um, as a professor at Georgia State University, it's my civic duty to really push my students and all of their peers to go and register and vote. I don't tell them who to vote for, um, but... What we've been able to do and what, you know, Stacey Abrams and Latasha Brown and Insay Ufad have been able to do is to expand voter roles. They've been able to target communities that have felt dispossessed. Uh, one of the things that I did for uh, the Democratic Party is I helped to explain to the party why black people in Georgia were not voting. And I didn't do it in terms of, you know, some kind of highbrow intellectual conversation. I took them to places like Bankhead. I took them to, play, to, to places like the South Side, East Point. I took them to South DeKalb and, and Candler Road. And I said, I want you to tell them why you don't vote for them. And I told the Democratic Party, if you want to do better, then this is what you, you have to hear what they're saying. Um, I think that the Democratic Party has heard the voices of its citizens. And so there is hope. Uh, I do have good feelings about uh, the, the, the election for senators. Um, Warnock uh, is is really going to push in a particular way because he is a minister and he is, you know, the pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church. And I mean, Dr. King means something here, mm -hmm. but also he's been a good neighbor. I mean, he he he's articulated the voice of the old fourth ward in the Sweet Auburn district on how to be good neighbors to the city of Atlanta and Georgia State University, uh, who Georgia State is kind of considered to be the gentrifier of downtown Atlanta. And Georgia State has to do right by black communities. And so. Even though I work at Georgia State, I am loyal to black communities because this is the community in which I live. 
Um, so there's hope. Um, and hey, we're going to use all of our powers to promote American democracy. And uh, I'm very clear on what I believe American democracy to be, and it has not been what we've witnessed over the last four years. All right. Well, we'll end on that note of hope for a better democracy, a better Atlanta, a better Georgia, a better United States of America. Uh, we've been having a terrific conversation with Dr. Maurice J. Hobson, who is an associate professor of African-American studies and historian at Georgia State University, a public intellectual. You see him everywhere. His book is The Legend of the Black Mecca, Politics and Class and the Making of Modern Atlanta. It's a brilliant new book, really deft analysis. I encourage everyone to get it. Thank you so much for joining us. All right, brother. Hey, and I appreciate you for reaching out, man. Thanks for listening to this episode. And you can check out related content on Twitter at Peniel Joseph. That's P-E-N-I-E-L-J-O-S-E-P-H. And our website, csrd.lbj.utexas.edu. And the Center for Study of Race and Democracy is on Facebook as well. This podcast was recorded at the Liberal Arts Development Studio at the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. Thank you.